What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 17 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode. Despite the debilitating impacts that anxiety and depression can have on young people, research shows that in the last year, less than one in four 16 to 24-year-old Australians with a mental health disorder sought help from mental health services. Those involved with the teaching of young people are all too aware of the importance of this issue. As such, in this episode of the ERRR, we speak to Dr. Yale Perry on the various manifestations of adolescent mental health, as well as programs that aim to improve it. Our discussion focuses on two of Yale's research papers. The first, entitled Effects of a Classroom-Based Educational Resource on Adolescent Mental Health Literacy, looks at the impact of Headstrong, a free-to-download school-based educational intervention to help students facing mental health challenges. The second paper considers the effectiveness of Sparks R, a gamified online cognitive behavioural therapy intervention for the prevention of depression in students who are facing their end-of-school exams. In addition to these two studies, I also ask Gail the following questions. What is anxiety and depression? Have the rates of anxiety and depression in young people increased over time? How do mental health challenges differentially impact different segments of the adolescent population? What role does technology play in exacerbating or treating mental health challenges in young adults? What does the research say on what makes a successful mental health program in schools? What's the role of teachers in supporting the mental health of young people and modelling positive mental health practices themselves? As well as much, much more. Now, to this episode's guest. Dr Yale Perry is a clinical researcher, psychologist and supervisor. She completed her Master's and PhD in Clinical Psychology at the University of New South Wales and her postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania under the supervision of Dr Aaron Beck. Yale returned to Australia in 2013 to work at the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, where she conducted clinical research on the prevention and treatment of mental illness of young people in schools, with a focus on utilising novel online and mobile technologies to address this important issue. In 2017, she relocated to Perth and joined the youth mental health team at Telethon Kids Institute. Yale is currently coordinating the Altitudes East-West trial, which investigates the effectiveness of an online intervention in reducing stress in carers of young people with early psychosis. Yale continues to develop and evaluate novel mental health interventions for vulnerable young people. Before we jump into the interview today, I just wanted to remind listeners of the Friday email that I send out every week, summarising the inspiring and edifying articles, blogs, books and podcasts that I've come across in the week just gone. If you don't have time to trawl through Twitter and online yourself, but you still like access to some of the wonderful discussions and content that are out there on education, this might be an email for you. Recent weekly emails have included articles on a knowledge-rich curriculum versus a rich curriculum, advice on how to observe lessons and give feedback, how schools can make use of research to reduce teacher workload, and many other educational nuggets. If it sounds like this might be right up your alley, 
just go to ollilevel.com to subscribe. That's enough of an intro for now. So without further ado, let's jump straight into today's interview with Dr. Yale Perry. Yale Perry, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you very much for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. All right. The first question we usually ask when someone joins us is if you're at a party and someone says, oh, hi, Yale, what is it that you do? What's your answer? It's a good question because I used to say that I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm both a clinical psychologist and a researcher, but I I thought people seemed to understand clinical psychologists more. But that tended to open the floodgates a little bit. So most people would tell me every problem they've ever had and and their parents and their children and, and their best friends. So I've actually started focusing a little bit more on saying I'm a researcher in youth mental health. And if people are interested in more, then I will go on to tell them about the specific areas of interest that I hold. And what brought you into this, studying this area of adolescent mental health? Yeah, look, it's been a little bit of a journey, actually. I've always sort of been interested in both research and clinical work. And so I decided to do a combined degree in clinical psychology. So doing both a PhD and a master's, which equipped me to sort of work in both areas. And I kind of found myself doing a PhD in an area that I wasn't that familiar with or that interested in. My supervisor sort of suggested something that sounded exciting, which was an autism topic, actually. And then I found myself doing some clinical work in early psychosis at the same time. And I just felt that that work really, really gelled with me. I felt that there were young people experiencing really significant difficulties. They had so much potential in their lives ahead of them, and it was really interfering with every aspect of their life. And, And there weren't a lot of great options for them in terms of treatments. And a lot of them focused on on medication and, and not sort of listening to people's experiences and trying to understand what they're going through and, and assist them in that way. So it kind of inspired me to, to work more in that area and actually switched my PhD topic and started working more in psychosis and have been through a number of different roles that have focused more or less around psychosis and schizophrenia and wherever possible working in an early intervention approach. And then I guess most recently before my current role, I started working at the Black Dog Institute over in Sydney, which has a real focus on prevention and early intervention. And I really sort of just jumped on the opportunity with a lot of excitement and energy. There was great potential to be working in the school space and to be making big differences in the lives of young people where I think that we can really have the the biggest impact. And then I've carried that work on in my current role at Telethon Kids Institute over here in Perth. We thought it might be a good place to start. Could you give us a definition of anxiety and a definition of, of depression, if that's something that's, that's easy enough to do? Yes. I mean, there's always a, there's the straight answer and there's a more complicated answer. Anxiety and depression are both, I guess, broad conditions. There are diagnoses that fall within the, each of those conditions. But when we talk about anxiety, we usually are describing a feeling of worry and it's usually around this idea of perceived threat. So there's something ahead of us that we're concerned about. 
worrying about some kind of negative outcome. And then I suppose you can apply that idea of anxiety to all sorts of things. So whether you're worrying about making a fool of yourself in front of someone, so that might be social anxiety, or you're worrying about if for someone, for example, who has post-traumatic stress, that's also considered an anxiety disorder. They, they fear, I guess, reliving a traumatic experience that they've had before. Some people have health anxiety, so they worry about a negative outcome in terms of getting sick or their loved ones getting sick. So it's really about that kind of sense of there's something ahead of me that is threatening and I'm concerned about it. And the the interesting thing about anxiety is that it comes from a good place. So most people are aware of this idea of a fight or flight response. So if something threatening is presented to you, your body sort of goes into this mode of fight or flight to either stay and protect you or run away. Either way, it's going to be adaptive. If, you know, if there's a big bear coming towards you or or a car about to run you over, that response is really helpful because it's preparing your body to adapt to it. The problem with modern day anxiety is that we perceive threats where they aren't actually there. So we're worried about you know, exam results or, you know, making a fool of ourselves, our body responds in the same way as if there was a real present threat. And the problem is if you keep on having that anxiety response, it's really draining and exhausting on your body and and on your mind, and it doesn't have such an adaptive response anymore. Mm. So I suppose that's that's sort of the anxiety part of things. Depression is really defined by the key characteristics of having sort of ongoing low mood and I guess a lack of interest in things that usually or used to provide pleasure to you. So those are the kind of the key hallmarks of experiencing depression. And there are a lot of things that can come with it in terms of experiencing guilt, thoughts of death and suicide, changes in appetite and sleep, general withdrawal behavior. But you may or may not experience all of those. Those are just kind of common symptoms that are associated with it. Thanks, yeah. So, so how are we going in Australia at the moment? Do we have an anxiety epidemic or is it, are things blown out of proportion? Oh, look, I mean, I think epidemic is kind of an alarmist word. Do we have a significant proportion of the population experiencing anxiety and depression? Yes, we do. More of the population doesn't experience anxiety and depression, but we still have, I guess, at least in young people, we have pretty high rates. It's not just anxiety and depression, though. There's a lot of associated disorders and difficulties that young people are going through. So I think there's about one in seven young people who've experienced uh, a mental disorder in the past year. So that is quite high. I mean, I think it's important to recognise that six in seven haven't experienced that, but it's only in the past year. So if we look at lifetime diagnoses, it's obviously significantly higher than just the last 12 months. And if we look at I guess what we would call subclinical presentation. So people who don't officially have a diagnosis of, say, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, conduct disorder, any of those other difficulties, there's still a very significant proportion of the population who are experiencing things that look like those disorders, but don't necessarily meet some kind of diagnostic threshold. So yes, I mean, overall, I would say this is a very significant problem. Whether or not we want to use the term epidemic is kind of, you know, it's it's partly an issue of semantics, I guess. Got it. And is is this an issue that has been growing? Because you, when you generally hear people talking about, they talk about 
as with most things, it's it's handy. To, people seem to be, like to be alarmist. But is this an issue <laughs> that is growing or is that just our sense of things? Yeah, look, again, I wish there was a really straightforward answer for this, but it kind of depends on the exact questions you ask and the sources that you go to for the answers. So one of the one of the major sources of our information around mental health, at least in young people, is the most recently the second national child and adolescent survey on mental health and well-being for Australia. So that came out in 2015 and it was a survey of around 6,000 households. They interviewed both parents, carers and young people, so about 3,000 young people from the ages of 11 to 17. And that really gave sort of a bit of a snapshot of where we are in terms of mental health disorders, at least for that age group, looking at both what parents say and what young people say. And they compared the results from this particular study to the first national survey, which was conducted in 1998. And overall, what they found was that there were no significant differences in general in terms of the rates of mental health difficulties among young people. That being said, within each specific disorder, there were changes. So, for example, I believe ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and conduct disorder, the rates had come down a little bit over that period, whereas the rates of depression had increased. We also know that the rates of suicide and suicide attempts in young people have increased over the last decade or so. So they've over, now overtaken motor vehicle accidents as, as the first leading cause of, of deaths in young people. Again, if you look at the, the youth mental health report that came out of Mission Australia over the, the last few years, they've shown increasing rates of probable serious mental illness. So I guess it, it depends on how you divide it up what your focus is. Overall, my sense is that there is an increasing trend more in the sort of adolescent, more serious mental illnesses. So things like depression, anxiety, suicidality, self-harm. And we do have some better outcomes for those sort of younger disorders, things that present more around the conduct disorder, ADHD, anxiety disorder age, which is a little younger in the spectrum. But that's sort of a general impression based on, a, on a, you know, bringing together a range of different studies. Got it. That's, a, that's interesting kind of pitting the, the leading cause of death amongst adolescents and, you know, young, young adults being like motor vehicle accidents and, and suicide, because I guess there's other factors like perhaps motor vehicle accidents have reduced or something like that. Yeah. So there could be a bit of an interaction there where it's not just one thing moving, it could be both. Yeah. So that's something to think about. But in terms of other other ways that the stats kind of move, Rob Monk on Twitter wanted to pose a question, which was, to what extent do the ways that we've changed how we make diagnoses influenced these rates in, in a historical context? Yeah, look, they de it definitely does play a role. It's difficult to quantify exactly how much of that is based on, on changing diagnoses or, or ways of diagnosing mental health difficulties. So if you take, for example, autism, we know that the change in diagnostic labelling and categorisation has had fluctuating impact on the rates of diagnosis. There have been changes. So, for example, that before there was an autism category, people, young people were diagnosed simply as, well, in America, they would say mental retardation, whereas here we say intellectual disability. And then there was a period when everybody with that di diagnosis was just shifted over to autism and, and there's been a number of other changes in terms of diagnostic criteria. So that will most certainly have an impact. 
there's also a range of other factors that that contribute to what those diagnostic categories look like as well. So, you know, up until 1987, homosexuality was included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It wasn't very long ago. So, you know, it, there was a whole category of individuals with a so-called mental disorder that completely disappeared as a result of removing that classification. And again, the, the most recent Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, number five, has had a complete overhaul in the way that we categorise certainly personality disorders at least. You know, you know in addition to that, the whole nature of research is that we gain more knowledge. So we we learn more about what certain classifications or conditions look like, and therefore we refine disorders. So it's possible that, you know, we misunderstood or misdiagnosed people previously or that, you know, we, we didn't have appropriate rates beforehand. And I guess the other thing that comes with that is, is just awareness of symptoms. So even if our diagnostic category stayed exactly the same, there's a lot more information out there to the public and just having access to technology and, you know, the internet at our fingertips. People are more able to understand what symptoms look like and therefore they may be more likely to seek out help and receive diagnoses. So it doesn't mean that individuals didn't necessarily have those diagnoses before. It just means that they mm. didn't have access to people who are able to diagnose them. If, if that's the case, we could potentially take increased rates as a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because it means we're learning about them, we can do something about it. That's exactly right. It's increased. It's potential for increased identification, mm. not just increased prevalence. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about the distribution of these challenges? And and I'm particularly interested in in kind of school age population. So do we see differences, for example, between public and private and Catholic schools, or all boys schools and all girls schools, mm. or different kind of ethnic minorities or things like that? Do you have any info on on the distribution? Look, we know that, you know, nobody is immune from mental illness or mental health conditions. So to some extent, all young people are affected, but there's definitely a disproportionate burden in certain groups. Typically, in terms of research, the focus hasn't been on specific school contexts, but more on particular vulnerability factors. So we know, for example, children living in out-of-home care, those in the youth justice system, those who are homeless. Obviously, they have increased risk factors, especially around poverty and sort of low socioeconomic areas. Those are, those are key risk factors in terms of increased mental health burden or mental illness burden. LGBTIQ young people are at certainly at increased risk. They have suicide rates or attempts of about five times higher than the general population. One in two trans young people are attempting suicide, trans and gender diverse young people. And Indigenous young people also have rates similar to LGBTIQ, so about four or five times higher. I believe that there are some increased incidences in, say, girls' schools of things like eating disorders, but I don't know, I don't know the details of specific school-based presentations. I do quite a bit of work now in vulnerable populations, but again, the biggest risk factors are some of those more sort of societal vulnerabilities rather than more contextual ones, I think. Mm, more structural stuff. Yeah. Got it. And another, another question in line with kind of a lot of your work, because a lot of your work is fo focused on technology. Mm. We often hear people talk about, oh, you know, smartphones these days, kids can't get off them, social media, they're so, it's so bad for students, young people's mental health. Mm. The fact that it's harder for students to maybe extract themselves from social situations because it, 
it's right there on their on their device all the time has a negative or a positive impact on mm. on young people's mental health at the moment yeah look there's no doubt that the sort of constant bombardment of messages <clears throat> from social media and the increased pressure around having sort of a perfect life or presenting mm. in a perfect way i think can definitely contribute to mental health difficulties but i certainly don't think it can sort of take all of the blame i think it's part of a changing kind of globalized world and we're we're constantly connected we're constantly switched on and i think that that you know there are definitely benefits associated with that but there there's also a general inability to switch off so when we think about that anxiety system that i was referring to earlier there's kind of i guess we use the term arousal but it, it's almost it's it's about being switched on and prepared and ready to deal with whatever comes your way which is helpful in small amounts but it almost feels like we're constantly switched on our arousal systems are always primed to respond to anything that comes at us because we constantly have access to other people in the world and i think that that can be really stressful and exhausting and especially for young people mm. that kind of constant pressure to respond to it you know i do believe it's a bit of a double edged sword though there's also a lot of benefits to social media and social sort of networking in terms of connecting a lot of isolated individuals who probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to find a community of like-minded people so a lot of minority groups have found their communities online and i think that that's a, a real source of genuine connectedness for a lot of people there's also a lot of accessibility for sort of rural and remote individuals who can kind of link in to other people and services and not feel so isolated so you know like everything i think it depends on context I also think people are very quick to blame technology these days, but it's a reality of the world that we live in. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So rather than sort of wishing it away, I think it's important to embrace the world that we currently live in and harness the technology for good. And you know, that's that's part of the reason why I'm so interested in working in this area. If young people are going to be using social media, then let's find out how they're using it in relation to their mental health. and maybe use it to identify those at risk and deliver interventions and access them through these platforms rather than just assuming that you know it's bad for them and there's nothing we can do mm. and we'll get more into that technology for good when we discuss your second paper but before we do that mm-hmm. i wanted to know so in victoria at the moment there's a bit of an initiative that to my mind is trying to bring some research into Victorian classrooms and schools mm. in a more structured way. Mm-hmm. And that that approach is called resilience rights and respectful relationships. And that, you know, that's this is something our school's been doing and I think most government schools in Victoria are doing at the moment. It looks at things like positive self-talk, stress management, help seeking, and peer support amongst other things. So, have you heard of this program and do do you know anything about the evidence base behind it and is this the kind of initiative you're talking about when you're talking about a structured approach or, or are we still missing the mark a little bit so i've heard of the program i haven't had much to do with it because i'm you know not based in victoria so i've done a little bit of reading around it and this is a good example of kind of from my perspective and my limited knowledge around it both a hit and miss approach. So when I look at the content of that program, the content looks good. It's targeting, you know, the key things that we would want to be focusing on in young people, but this this program I think highlights a really important distinction between evidence informed and evidence based. 
And I think it's a distinction that most people are completely unaware of and, and fair enough, they, they haven't been educated about it. But just, you know, to some extent, I think it's a really important distinction. So if I look at that program, it says that I believe, I think it says it's evidence-based and it will, there's a link, I think, in their materials to big meta-analysis that looked at social and emotional well-being programs in schools that is, you know, it collates, uh, I think, probably over 100 programs looking at outcomes across the board in different schools in different countries. What is the effectiveness of social and emotional well-being programs? And it's positive. There are positive outcomes on social and emotional well-being, which is great. That is really important evidence. By looking at that and developing a program that is based on social and emotional well-being, it doesn't tell us whether or not that specific program is going to be effective. Mm. So within those, you know, the 100 plus programs that were reviewed, some of them were more effective than others. Some of them weren't effective at all. And so simply basing something on the premise that social and emotional well-being programs are effective and have some key components that you might want to replicate in your own program is not enough to say that if we implement this program, it's going to result in, in positive outcomes. Do I think it's good that schools are doing something with an evidence-informed basis rather than nothing? Absolutely. And I wouldn't suggest that schools stop doing that. What I would suggest is that if there's any way to either use a program that has already been evaluated, the specific program, that's a, probably one step up from an evidence-informed program to an evidence-based program. And even better, if you can evaluate it in some way within your own school context, that's sort of the, I guess, mm. the ultimate, the ultimate feedback for your own context, because we know that something that works in one environment might straight up just not be effective in another environment. So it's really important to combine an evidence base with, I guess, some contextual information and some something that's tailored and, and works for your particular environment. Mm. Well, let us now talk about <laughs> a program that has been evaluated. So the first, yes. first paper we're talking about today is entitled Effects of a Classroom-Based Educational Resource on Adolescent Mental Health literacy. Mm -hmm. And this program or this paper was about the evaluation of the Headstrong program. That's right. So could you just tell us what, what is the Headstrong program or what did it look like? Right. So the Headstrong program was developed by the Black Dog Institute a number of years ago. And essentially it combines a number of different resources. So some of the, the key resources are an information booklet that provides information to teachers on mood disorders, including primarily depression and bipolar disorder a little bit as well, and a range of classroom-based activities and resources, a slideshow that goes along with the activities, some advice and guidance around how to implement these classroom activities. And each, each part of that program is linked to syllabus outcomes for each state and nationally. So essentially, teachers can go to the website, download the resource, implement it, and know that they've been able to complete their PDHP curriculum around mental health for that particular age group. It's targeting year 9 and 10 students. So could, could you maybe pick one of the focus areas of the program and give us a little bit more detail about what that element looked like potentially in the classroom? Is that something? Yeah. Yeah. So look, I mean, there were, so there are, <laughs> there are five modules 
And they sort of work progressively, you know, around introducing the concept of mood and mental well-being, then getting sort of focused more on being able to identify what symptoms might look like or changes, what changes in mood mean. There's a module around helping others, so identifying those kinds of symptoms in other people and building resilience. And, and the last module is really around developing and implementing local action and awareness. So what can you do within your school environment to sort of make sure that people are aware of, of mental health difficulties and what do we do in that situation if we notice it either within ourselves or, or, or our peers. And that is delivered in sort of a, an engaging and interactive way. So there would be sort of some delivery of just straight up information and then discussion and then working together in small groups around sort of developing those plans and, and implementing them number of activities got it so just in terms i'll quickly recap the design Mm -hmm. just for listeners so it was about 380 year nine and ten students from Mm -hmm. five catholic and five independent schools and we were looking around at central west new south wales and the control group was basically students doing their usual health and 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 pe classes Mm -hmm. or health and personal development classes the intervention was take took place over five to eight weeks and was 10 hours total class time, and students were assessed on five measures, both pre, post, and on a six-month delay, which which is awesome to be able to have that kind of delayed data yep. as well. So the first thing, the first measure you looked at was the mental health literacy scale, or oh, sorry, the depression literacy scale, which measured mental health literacy. Mm-hmm. So what did you see? Did you see students' mental health literacy increase at all? We did. So that was the the key outcome measure. And essentially, it's assessing young people's understanding of depression and other associated mental health conditions. It was sort of adapted from a standardised scale specifically for this study and, and sort of the headstrong content. So what we found in terms of mental health literacy was a, there was a significant improvement for those in the Headstrong group compared to the control group, both from pre-intervention to post-intervention and again from pre-intervention to six-month follow-up although that difference wasn't as big. So we sort of talk about effect sizes in research, so whether it's a small sort of moderate or large effect size, and the original, the pre-post difference was a moderate effect size and a drop to a smaller effect size at six-month follow-up. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So the next measure, so we saw a a great increase in mental health literacy. That's awesome. The next thing was stigma. Mm. And I was really interested when I was reading your paper because there was a bit of a breakdown. You, you kind of partitioned stigma mm. in a way that I hadn't seen done before. So you talked about two different stigmas that can be held, which are like the weak, not sick stigma versus the dangerous slash unpredictable mm-hmm. stigma around mental health challenges. And then there was also the, the public stigma versus self-stigma. Right. So could you walk us through those different stigmas a little bit? Yeah. So I guess the the idea of personal or self-stigma, sorry, not self-stigma. So self-stigma is another concept altogether. Self-stigma is when you're actually stigmatizing your own experiences or conditions. Mm. Personal stigma is more around the respondents, people who respond to this questionnaire, their own attitudes towards depression. So for example, how strongly do they personally agree with these specific statements around depression, that people with depression are, you know, lazy or you know, foolhardy, Mm. whereas perceived stigma or public stigma uh, measures the individual's perception about the attitudes of others towards depression. 
The other distinction around weak, not sick, and <laughs> excuse me, dangerous and unpredictable is is kind of, I guess, a way of understanding the stigma rather than being a, a sort of separate separate kinds of stigma. So really, both personal and and public stigma can incorporate elements of these other two things. So mm. weak, not sick, is this idea that you know the the there is some kind of personal weakness that is under the control of the individual rather than seeing, say, depression as more like a medical condition and, you know, dangerous and unpredictable is, I guess, fairly self-explanatory. But when you look at the items within this scale and you kind of break it down, what we find is that they kind of naturally fall into these two groups that that the actual statements and items tend to sort of group together or make sense as representing this idea of, you know, someone being weak, not sick, or someone being dangerous and unpredictable. Okay, thanks Thanks for that breaking that breaking that down. So did, did we see any changes in, in stigma presented by the participants in this study? Yeah, so we saw an overall significant improve, improvement in stigma immediately post-intervention. That was a moderate effect size. And then it was actually a larger effect size at the follow-up, but it was only marginally significant. So that that could be an issue of, of numbers more than anything. So we would assume, because it was sort of on the cusp of significance, we would assume that that that, that significance or, or the improvement was sort of maintained and actually to some extent grew at six-month follow-up. That was when you look at sort of both the weak, not sick and the dangerous, unpredictable factors together. And then if you break it down, there was actually no significant difference in the weak, not sick factor between the two groups over the course of the study. But that's actually because both groups improved. So it's not that there was no difference at all. They just didn't differ in a different way, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. And there was a significant improvement on the dangerous and unpredictable factor. So those in the headstrong group improved more on on that scale or they were less likely to think that people with depression were dangerous and unpredictable after completing the intervention. Okay. Cool. Now, there are a couple of other measures. I don't want to go into all of them, just for the interest of time, but there was one that I thought was quite important and that was, that was help seeking. So, the, the likelihood that students would seek help in the future and you used a validated instrument to, to check this out. Mm. In the study of your paper, you, you made some comments like, a recent review of help-seeking for mental disorders found lack of knowledge regarding mental health to be a key obstacle preventing young people from seeking assistance. So that was one thing. So that was saying that mm-hmm. help-seeking is limited by people's knowledge about mental health. Mm-hmm. But this this study or this approach has drawn seemed to increase understanding. So you would have thought that would reduce barriers help-seeking. And then the next thing that I also said in the paper was both public and self-stigma have a broad range of negative ramifications for those with mental illness, notably social exclusion and reduced treatment-seeking. So in both these cases, we've kind of drawn a a link between knowing about mental health issues and help-seeking and stigma and help-seeking. And we saw improvements in both knowing about mental health issues and reduction in stigma. However, on this help-seeking scale, we didn't see any improvement from the headstrong intervention. So why do you think that was? The beauty of research is that nothing actually pans out exactly the way that that we want it to. I think, so look, there's a number of different reasons why we didn't necessarily see any change in this particular measure, in the help-seeking measure. So one thing we noticed was if you look at the pattern of results for mental health literacy 
that actually the effect of mental health literacy declined over time. So it was stronger straight after the intervention and weaker at six months follow-up. The opposite was true for stigma reduction. So the stigma reduction was weaker straight after the intervention and stronger at six-month follow-up. What this might suggest to us, because we know that those two are both certainly related, at least previously in the literature, to help-seeking, they may both be necessary but not sufficient. So essentially there might not have been a strong enough dose of both of those things at both times to have an impact on the help-seeking. And this, we think, is also, you know, likely to be more generally an issue around whether or not there was a sufficient dose or duration of the program itself. So maybe five modules of this isn't enough to have a big enough effect on mental health literacy and on stigma reduction to then sort of have knock-on effects onto help-seeking. So it doesn't mean that the relationship doesn't exist. It means that we weren't able to measure it or that there were intervening variables that interfered with that relationship in some way. And I think that while we did certainly use a standardised measure of help-seeking, there are also some issues associated with the measure and the self-reported nature of it. So I think the issue here is really how can we, how can the connection between knowledge and action be strengthened And part of that is I think we need boosters in terms of the delivery of the actual message or we need a a stronger, longer intervention. We need a school culture that provides sort of constant reminders that supports the delivery of that. We need more objective measures and we need longer follow-up. I still believe that there's absolutely a connection there, but it wasn't demonstrated in this particular study for probably a number of those reasons. Mm. That makes sense. And I don't know, this this makes me think about just kind of the knowledge practice gap more generally everywhere. So if we're trying to help students to develop better study skills, for example, we can tell them, oh, you know, you need to do retrieval practice or you need to like quiz yourself. But often like that doesn't mean much to them until you actually, I literally like yesterday, I sat down with a student at lunchtime and said, you need to write out a quest, you need to cover the answer. You need to write out the answer, then you need to check your answer. Yes. So so maybe what that could look like in this context would be every student who goes through the program has a 15-minute session with a counsellor to try it out and just to get an experience and, and maybe that would have an impact as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think we know, I mean, it's sort of education 101 that simply delivering information to people is not enough to actually get them to change their behaviour. They need to practice it and they need to have those opportunities. So Part of the problem, and, you know, it's a good thing a lot of the time, is that young people don't necessarily have an opportunity to test out what they've learned because they might Mm. not be having a mental health problem and they may not know anyone who's having a mental health problem within the short period in which we're conducting this study. But if they get a genuine opportunity to practice those skills, even just once, then it's probably going to really significantly impact their help-seeking likelihood in the future as well. But being able to capture that in a research context is very difficult. So as a chapter in your kind of learning mm. or your research career, what were your some of your key takeaways from this Headstrong research? My Headstrong research was really actually my first foray into school-based research as opposed to youth mental health research more broadly. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the main things I've learned is that, and I've learned this in, in all school-based research since then, is that is the importance of having schools on board with research. So, you know, we need much better partnerships between researchers and schools 
And part of that is means going to schools in the first instance and, and figuring out what their issues are and what their needs are and being partners from the beginning. Mm. I think for too long, researchers have done a lot of, hey, we've developed this shiny new product, now you need to use it. And schools don't want to use it because it doesn't fit in with their needs or their context or their curriculum or their structure. And so a lot of what happened with Headstrong is that there was sort of bi-directional you know, conversations around what the resource would look like in the first instance. And then I, I guess in implementing the actual intervention, taking that feedback back on board, updating it into Headstrong 2.0, combining that with the evidence. And like I said, I think earlier, it's really important that, you know, research plays a significant role in these kinds of interventions, but it has to be met at the, you know, face-to-face with schools and what they're going through day-to-day and making sure that they're really accessible, acceptable interventions to the schools and the teachers and the young people. Otherwise, it doesn't matter if we have the best intervention in the world. No one's going to use it. So so what I'm hearing is is more partnerships rather than transactions. And I and that's something that that holds right down to the classroom level when we're talking about teaching individual students and teachers developing partnerships with those students versus kind of like a transactional approach to teaching and learning. Yeah. Great. So before we talked about technology as the enemy, so (laughs) maybe now we can talk about technology as ally. The second paper we were going to have a bit of a chat about was entitled Preventing Depression in Final Year Secondary Students, School-Based Randomized Controlled Trial. And this was about the Sparks R program. So what is Sparks R? Sparks R is a revised version of Sparks. Sparks was originally developed by a group of researchers at the University of Auckland. And Sparks is a serious game. So for those who aren't familiar with the terminology, it's simply a game that's used for serious purposes. So it utilizes sort of gamification to to make sure that the serious purpose is, is provided to the user in kind of an engaging and motivating way. So Sparks in particular uses the format of a fantasy game to provide cognitive behavioral skills to young people. And originally it was designed for those who present with depression, so who actually have mild to moderate symptoms of depression. Sparks R, which was revised to become a prevention version, essentially delivers exactly the same skills, but it's framed in a different way. So instead of saying, you know, this game is for people who are struggling with depression, who are feeling down or low, it will say, everybody can feel down or stressed sometimes. This game is going to give you some skills to help you work through those times and sometime in the future you might be able to use them if things aren't going so well for you. But essentially the take-home message is that each level within the Sparks and the Sparks R game provides a new cognitive behavioural skill and it's sort of presented to the users through a series of challenges in a world that has been overrun by NAP, which stands for Gloomy Negative Automatic Thoughts, and the user's mission is to really restore balance in the game world and to work their way through these series of challenges, learning skills along the way. Where do I sign up? (laughs) I wish you could sign up in Australia. Unfortunately, it's not freely available yet, but everyone in New Zealand can access it because the Department of Health over there has actually paid for it to be freely available. Everything seems better in New Zealand sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it does. Okay. So I guess a key thing for for me from this study was that it looked at 
or it was delivered to students right before their very final exam. So this is year 12 high stakes, ultimate stress time for students. And this is where it was implemented. And then you were able to look at the impacts, whether it had any impacts on ATARs, suicidality, stigma again, and and depression and anxiety. So, yep. so did it have any impact? Yes, it did. Before I, I get to that, I just wanted to kind of highlight something something that you mentioned about the fact that it was delivered at this extremely high stress time. That was really the focus of this study. Yes, we wanted to see, I guess, if you know this particular intervention would be effective, but the nature of of mental health is is that it's, or mental illness is that it's very much based on the stress vulnerability model which some of the listeners would be familiar with, essentially every individual has got some level of vulnerability towards developing some kind of mental health problem, let's say depression. That level of vulnerability is, you know, lower or higher in different individuals depending on their individual circumstance. And what will essentially tip someone over the edge into developing a mental health condition is the level of stress that they're under. Mm. So that is going to really, I guess, move the threshold up or down depending on your own level of vulnerability. So what we wanted to do was really test out this stress vulnerability model by saying we know that this period in young people's lives is a universally experienced period of stress. Mm. It is highly unlikely that anybody going through final exams won't have some kind of elevated level of stress. So we know that this is a time where people are particularly young people are particularly at risk of developing depression. So what happens if we can implement this intervention just in advance of this stressor? Maybe we can lower that threshold or raise that threshold, I guess, in these individuals who are at risk to the point where they may not actually develop that mental health difficulty. And so what we did was we implemented the program in 10 schools in Sydney. Half of them were randomly allocated to the Sparks condition and half were randomly allocated to an attention match control condition. And we found that the depression rates or depression symptoms were lower in the Sparks group, both at post-intervention, immediately following the intervention, and six months later as well, but not at 18 months follow-up, which was when they were, it's the year following final years. So most of them were at university, some were on gap years or working. But one thing to point out is that in terms of the timing of the intervention, we implemented it in at the very beginning of the year. So the six-month follow-up was right before the trial HSC. Um, this was a New South Wales-based study. So although we couldn't, we didn't get permission to assess students just before the final HSC, which would have been sort of essentially 12 months later, the trial HSC in the middle of the year is the second biggest set of assessments that contributes to that final score. So we thought that would be a a really high risk period. And and we were very pleased to see that depression rates in, in the Sparks group were actually sort of lower at that time than they were at the beginning of the year. That's really encouraging. Yeah, it was great. Though I do do have a bit of a worry, and that's that one of the main challenges of some of my students at the moment is the fact that they don't get any sleep because they're gaming all night. (laughs) So I'm I'm a bit worried about the idea of using games to help them with their addiction to games. But but that's an aside. No, well, it's a really it's a it's a valid aside, and and I've certainly heard that plenty of times. We have heard that plenty of times that is it appropriate to use gaming to, you know, for this particular population, given how many young people are, you know, concerned, you know, they have concerning levels of, of gaming addiction. I would not necessarily recommend this game to those with gaming addiction specifically. Mm. That being said, 
you know, it's important to separate out the the content of an intervention with the delivery of it. So Mm. if young people were up late playing this game and learning skills to help with their depression, I would imagine that would still be a better situation than if they were up late playing, you know, video games and shooting people up. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's something to consider. And and usually it's not sort of an either or. People, you know, young people who have those kinds of difficulties certainly need assistance with them. But if we can actually access them in a way that is engaging to them and acceptable to them, it, you know, the whole idea of technology is that it should be an adjunct and it should be supportive of existing interventions. There are plenty of people out there who simply won't do face-to-face interventions. They won't seek help from a school psychologist or a counsellor or a headspace, but they will go online. And so that is a, a really nice alternative, I think, for those for those individuals. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's that's fantastic. So takeaways again. What what were some of your key takeaways from this study? Ah, oh, there are quite a lot of them <laughs> in this particular study. So for those of you who who've read the paper. There, there is some information in there around some implementation difficulties that we had. And the, some of them were around the technology and some of them, I'm not sure actually how much of this was included in the paper itself, but was again around the important role of the schools being supportive of these kinds of interventions. So we, we engaged with a lot of schools and there was a lot of resistance from schools around doing anything in year 12 for fear of interrupting Mm. the important academic year. So this intervention was five hours total across seven weeks, which, you know, in the big scheme of things was across the entire 12 months. And if we think about it, if we can get positive outcomes on depression by taking, you know, five hours out of out of the school year, from my perspective, that's a really worthwhile investment. Mm. And part of the pressure that is on these young people is that you can't possibly take any time out of, you know, your academic studies to focus on your mental health, which I think is a little counterintuitive. So again, you know, whether it comes from us as researchers or internally from the schools, I think we all need to be doing a better job of kind of working together to see the value of, you know, the potential value of research, but also the the value of including mental health initiatives and curriculums within the school setting and the potential benefits of that on, on the young people. So I guess, yeah, one of the take-homes was really sort of what an important role schools play in being supportive of both research and preventive interventions more generally. We can't do it without you and you guys can't do it without us. So, it's you know, it's that partnership. The other thing was the techn- technological difficulties. And so the Sparks game is had a very sort of big game file and we were trying to implement it to, you know, 100 kids at a time and in schools that didn't necessarily have the IT infrastructure to cope with that, which caused frustration and difficulty accessing it sometimes. So I guess it really just, it it reminded me and it highlighted that it's really important that if we're going to have utilised and kind of capitalise on the benefits of technology, that we really need to make sure, I guess, we get it right and that we have these programs at a certain level that is easily deliverable and that we can roll it out in a way that will really work so that we don't end up discouraging schools and young people from using them. Mm. Key takeaways there. Continuing on with this kind of tech- technological bent of the interview, what, what more broadly, what do you see as the role of technology in reducing mental health challenges in young people more broadly? 
Oh, look, I think I think technology has massive potential and can play a really big role in in improving adolescent mental health. There are a lot of benefits associated with technology, again, as a supplementary sort of way of providing interventions to young people because there isn't a one-size-fits-all model. I think we kind of need to target mental health problems from every different angle that we can. So in terms of technology and the benefits it offers, there's sort of, you know, there's there's number one is privacy and kind of the the ability to engage in an intervention essentially by yourself to some extent. So what that means is you can access these skills and this knowledge and these supports without necessarily stepping out of your comfort zone too far, which is a really big obstacle. We know that stigma is one of the biggest obstacles for young people. So being able to do this kind of intervention either in the privacy of your own home, on your computer or on an app can be really beneficial for young people. Obviously, accessibility online, anywhere, anytime. For rural and remote young people, this can be really helpful. For those who can't access services because they need their parents to help them and they don't want to tell their parents. For those who can't afford it, you know, online interventions are a really cost-effective way of providing this kind of support. One thing that people don't talk about that much is fidelity as well. So unfortunately, if you go and see a school counsellor or a private psychologist or a GP or, or any kind of health professional, the delivery of an intervention, any kind of intervention, is completely reliant on that person's knowledge, competence, own beliefs, ability to teach or transfer knowledge. Blood sugar levels. Blood sugar levels, all of the above, exactly. Whereas... To some extent, an online intervention is designed and delivered exactly as it was meant to be. There is some flexibility and obviously the the user can have an impact on how, on the fidelity, but the user will always have an impact on, on the fidelity of a program. And so in some ways it cuts out a little bit of that additional error associated with the, the person who's providing it. And obviously, you know, the simple one of engagement, young people like technology, they don't love speaking to, you know, old people who are concerned about their mental health and want to have a chat. Some people do, but a lot of people don't. And so providing this alternative way of, you know, accessing information and support just just means it can be a lot more acceptable to a whole group of individuals who otherwise wouldn't wouldn't receive it. And I guess finally, that, that, that idea of, of being able to scale up, you know, if we can get the technology right, being able to deliver an intervention to, you know, 100 or 200 or 500 young people in schools, as opposed to having small groups of six people sitting down with an external health professional coming in once a week for a group, you know, it just, it's a lot more feasible and cost effective and, and practical for a lot of schools who don't have the resources to deliver these kinds of programs otherwise. Mm. My name's Beth, and my question is about what research can tell us about the causes of depression in adolescence, because it seems like these programs are really focused on mental health literacy and, you know, increasing help-seeking behaviour, decreasing stigma. Is there anything that you've found in relation to, you know, whether bullying is a major cause, stressful exams, you know, things that students are worried about that might be that we might be able to influence as teachers? Look, it's it's a great question. Again, it's a big question. So the first project that I was telling you about was around mental health literacy and stigma reduction. The second one around SPARKS is specifically around depression prevention. The causes for depression in young people are 
many and varied, but they basically rely on that stress vulnerability model. So we know that in a young person who develops depression, they will have some vulnerability towards depression. And what that might mean is that there might be some genetic predisposition to it. So for example, if they have a family member who has depression or a related condition, they're at increased risk. We know that some of the other risk factors are, you know, things in environmental poverty, that sort of thing. And so to some extent, there isn't those aren't that modifiable in terms of the the existing vulnerability of the young person. The part that is modifiable is the stress, right? The stress and the vulnerability come together. And so what we want to be able to do for young people is, well, A, ideally, it would be lovely to remove some of the stresses in that individual's life. And sometimes that's possible, whether it's sort of an environmental stressor, if they're living in a home with a lot of abuse or, you know, something along those lines. As teachers, if you're aware of that and you're able to assist, that would create a significant reduction in their stress levels and 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 therefore a re- reduced likelihood of developing depression. But one of the other major things we can do is give them tools to manage their stress. Thank you. Sure. Okay, more on... I guess this is a question about when potentially interventions that are meant to help things can can go wrong. Now we had Tom Brunzel in the ERRR many months ago. He's a, he works on post psych, and he was talking about the benefits of things like meditation, for example. But then a couple of months later, we had Catherine Scott on, and she was talking. She warned us against the dangers of meditation, and she was suggesting that you never know what's going on in a person's internal world, and for some people meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, can actually trigger things for them that that are going to be counterproductive in terms of their mental health. Mm. Have you heard this said before? And and what's your understanding of this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely heard it said. I've I've heard both sides of the coin and I think there's something to be said for both of them. Uh, I don't think anyone is right or wrong in this situation. There are countless studies that have demonstrated support for mindfulness meditation. We know that mindfulness can be very helpful for a range of different individuals from children all the way up to sort of older adults. And in a range of different contexts, it can be helpful as relapse prevention. It can be helpful as a treatment in some contexts, as a preventative measure. There's lots lots of good evidence to support its efficacy. We also know that there are a number of contraindications for mindfulness. So specifically for those who are acutely unwell, especially if you're psychotic, if you have any history of kind of dissociation or having a dissociative disorder, Mm. and know that extended periods of meditation, especially for people who are new to it, um, can be problematic and, and can result in some sort of adverse events, I guess. I think the main thing to note with this is that Mindfulness is actually very hard. It sounds very simple, but it's very hard to do. And it's a skill that requires a lot of practice, but a lot of paced practice. And it requires proper support and instruction. If you want to do it as an actual mental health practice or treatment or intervention, then essentially the way to do it is with a well-trained, supportive health practitioner. I guess the take-home message is that it's helpful if it's done properly and done well, but it's not for everybody. And I think it's important to kind of do it, I guess, a bit of a thorough assessment of where you're at and what you're trying to achieve and and how you're going to go about it before you sort of jump into it and assume that it's going to fix all your problems. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about teachers kind of modeling 
mental health practices. I was kind of thinking about a little bit of an ex- a thought experiment today, and I was thinking probably most teachers would be happy to say to their class, oh, sorry, guys, I wasn't here yesterday. You know, I had a doctor's appointment. Oh, sorry, I missed class. But I'm not sure how many teachers would be happy to say, sorry, guys, I, you know, I couldn't make it to class yesterday. I had to go see my psychologist. To what extent do you think that's true? And what role do you think teachers have in modelling help-seeking, for example, to their students? Yeah, so I think there's sort of two different aspects to that question. To what extent do I think that's true? To a great extent. And I think that that's still very much an issue around stigma. You know, we don't share that kind of information openly and widely. Um, It's not just like going to a doctor for most people. It does still, I think there's definitely still beliefs there around being weak, not sick. You know, like we discussed that, you know, if you have a, you know, a sore arm or if you have a rash or something, nobody would think twice about going to a doctor. But if you're feeling low or anxious, it must be something wrong with you as opposed Mm. to, you know, needing assistance. So definitely stigma plays a role. And, you know, whether you're a teacher or a researcher or a psychologist or a young person or a parent, you know, that that's still going to affect people sort of regardless of, of, of the presentation, I think. In terms of the role that teachers have in modelling good mental health practices, that's a really interesting one. So I guess this is kind of more a personal perspective than anything. I'm very supportive of self-disclosure when it's done kind of judiciously and thoughtfully, but not just for the sake of it. So For example, I think it's really helpful to share preventive kind of mental health practices. So I think it's a nice idea for teachers to say, you know, I woke up this morning and I went for a run and I had like a good breakfast and I did 10 minutes of of meditation, you know, on my way into work because I really feel like it's I start my day well and it reduces my stress and it, it makes me feel good. And, you know, that might be something that you guys want to try out because, you know, these are kind of things that really kind of keep you in good stead for your own mental health. Now, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's the wrong thing to share experiences of mental health difficulties with students, but I think we really need to think about why we would be doing that. So, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot that comes with sharing that kind of experience. So we can't just simply model good behavior by saying, you know, I have depression or I have PTSD or I have, you know, I experience panic attacks because a lot of the time young people might question that, they might not understand it, and there may not be the flexibility within your relationship relationship to adequately explore it. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't necessarily recommend sharing those experiences sort of widely and openly as an open-ended, you know, statement or just for the sake of it, purely to model the fact that it's okay to have these difficulties. But in the right context, I think it can be a really good way to model behaviour. So if you are talking one-on-one with a young person who's experiencing some difficulties, maybe they're feeling very anxious about an upcoming exam and they're not able to sleep, I think it's fine and probably quite helpful to say, you know what? I remember when I was in uni or, you know, even last week I had a deadline or something along those lines and I found it really difficult to to get to sleep and I had thoughts running through my head. And what I was able to do was X, Y and Z and this really helped me get through it. Maybe that's something you might want to try. And so kind of using it in the right context to, to show that everybody experiences these things, that we're all human, but also perhaps using it as an opportunity to kind of share some guidance around what might be helpful. Obviously, if it's a more serious mental health 
concern, then it's not the teacher's role or duty to kind of provide treatment. And and then, you know, it, it sort of depends on the circumstance. But I think thinking through why you might be self-disclosing this information and how it can help the students is more important than simply modelling the fact that, you know, people have mental health difficulties. Mm. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes sense. So, and, and, and apart from, you know, modelling good practices when the time is appropriate, right. what are some of the key things that teachers need to know when, you, for example, I've got some students in my class who, in my classes who I think may be suffering from some form of depression. I know I've definitely got students who have anxiety. Mm. You know, I have some worries about, I, or I, and, and I have in the past about some students maybe having suicidal thoughts. What, what does teachers need to know in these contexts in order to best support their students? Yeah. Look, it's, I mean, that's so tricky. And that's kind of the million dollar question that, that most teachers, they want to be in a position to help and they need to know how they can help. There are two key things that I would say. The first one is to be open to students coming to you. And the second one is to be informed. So when we talk about being open, there was a study that one of my colleagues here at Telethon Kids conducted some years ago where they basically just went to young people in a school and asked them to go through a list of all of the school staff and to highlight who they considered to be approachable if they were going to have a mental health difficulty mm. and who would they go to. And out of about 70 school staff, I think there are about two or three people that consistently got nominated. Yep. And they weren't the mental health staff. They weren't necessarily the school psychologist or the part of the wellbeing team. They might have been a maths teacher or an English teacher, but there was something that was particularly approachable about them. So I guess the idea that more than two or three staff in a school could be approachable is the first place to focus on. You know, it would be great if all teachers were available, accessible, encouraging and approachable so that young people felt that, they, that there was always someone that they could go to. I mean, that's not going to be true of all teachers. But I guess creating an atmosphere and a persona that show, and, and you could be quite explicit about this, that just tells young people that you're someone that they can go to and talk to if they're having a rough time. Now, the second part of that is if people come to you, you need to be able to know what to do, right? And so the second part is to be informed and what that means is to spend a little bit of time preparing and knowing what you're going to say and do and what knowing what resources you can and should access if that time comes. So I guess there are some, some resources, say, for example, if you go online on the Beyond Blue website, there are specific resources for schools and teachers around having some of those conversations. It's important to know what resources you have within your school, so what the referral pathways are to the school psychologists or the school counsellors, what's available in the local area. You know, I think a lot of teachers feel the weight of this on their shoulders and they feel like they have to fix the young people's problems and they don't, but what they can be is a really great first port of call and all that means is that you need to be open and encouraging and willing to speak with young people and to know how to pass them on to the best support services that are available. Mm, staying informed. That's right. Got it. Closing questions. What advice would you give to your first year researcher self, Yale? 
Oh, so many things. <laughs> well, one of the first things I would say is wait to do your PhD until you've had more experience in the world and choose something that you're genuinely passionate about. That would have saved mm. me a year <laughs> working in something that mm. was still interesting but was not where my passion lay. And I think a lot of people do wait to do their PhD until later in life. You know, they've been working in a particular field and then they, you know, they get really inspired by something. But some people are more sort of career researchers, I guess, like myself. And I still think there's so much value in getting out there into the world and really seeing things from everyone else's perspective rather than being sort of, I guess, up in an ivory tower thinking that you can fix all the world's problems without knowing what it actually feels like on the ground. Mm. So that that's a big one. The other one is to, I guess, remain curious. Very easy in, I guess, academia to sometimes get bogged down in, in, you know, study outcomes and measures and publications and grants and all that sort of thing. And really what we're trying to do is to find out more about the world and to make things better for people. And so just sort of to remain focused on the curiosity and learning and knowledge and less focused on, you know, the key indicators of your research productivity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I think a challenge that that we all suffer from, whichever field we're in, kind of that metric of failure or the focus on on metrics, it's it's pretty easy to fall into. Absolutely, yeah. Now the next question, you can choose to <laughs> just take as you wish. As we close up the ERR, where do you get your fix of education research or or research mm. in your field? Field? Are there any key mailing lists? And you can kind of share from your own perspective, but also for teachers who want more information in this space, I guess. And then there's some people and or organisations that you yourself go to for information around supporting young people with mental health challenges or that teachers might like to check out? Yeah, so look, I'm not sure, uh, maybe a lot of the listeners are already familiar with Google Scholar Alerts, but that is by far one of the best sources of up-to-date information for me. So essentially, all you need to do is go to Google Scholar and you can create an alert for the same as you would on Google sort of more broadly for any area of interest. So for me, I have alerts around prevention, early intervention, depression, suicide, LGBTI, youth, mental health, online interventions, anything that's really that I'm really interested in. And the same could be true of specific education and research interests. And you just basically get mm. daily or weekly, depending on what your preference, updates of whatever the most current literature is that's come out in the last week. And that is a really excellent way to stay on top of things. I find that I can't read all the articles as quickly as they come out, but I kind of have a, an, an ongoing reading list where I you know, read through my scholar alerts. I pick out the ones that are most relevant or most interesting to me. I pop them in my reading list and whenever I get some spare time, I just kind of work my way through it or I even just make a mental note. So if six in six months time, someone says, oh, do you know anything about, you know, homelessness and gender diverse young people? And I sort of think to myself, you know, I know I had an article that I put aside from the scholar alert and it just kind of make, it keeps you mm. on your toes with what's relevant. So that's a that's one really good way of, of staying up to date. I do follow some people on Twitter. I do. I, I really like to follow organizations. You know, I do follow specific researchers, but I'm also really interested in following organizations so that I kind of have, I guess, a bit more of a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the community. We, you know, we interact with the community a lot in our research as well, but it's helpful to follow things like mental health associations, 
clinical groups, consumer organisations, young people's advocacy organisations, special interest groups around, you know, Aboriginal young people, LGBTI young people. So that's a lot of uh, sort of a lot of the kinds of organisations that I follow. Like the the main ones I can just mention, but I'm happy to put together something as well. But, you know, the go-tos in terms of sort of up-to-date, sort of good evidence-based information in terms of mental health, at least. Uh, Black Dog Institute, some of the stuff that comes out of Telethon Kids. We've got a smaller youth mental health team here. Origin down in Melbourne does fantastic work. And then Beyond Blue, obviously, is a a really good advocacy organisation. And they have really strong links with all all of those organisations have strong links Mm -hmm. with a lot of relevant community organisations as well. So those are kind of my go-tos in terms of really good quality information around mental health. And then there's a lot of much smaller sort of interest groups around them. Fantastic. Well, and we'll make sure to to link to all those organisations in the show notes. And finally, Yael, any last calls to actions or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Yeah, look, I mean, I think really one of the main things I'd love listeners to do is to be proactive. I think all too often it it takes a young person with serious mental health concerns or a suicide within the school or the school community for people to kind of get to get sort of woken up and and activated in this space. And I think if if there's one thing I could recommend is to just take some time, and I know that people are time poor, but it could really be beneficial in the long term to investigate what's out there, investigate evidence-based programs. There's actually a summary sheet on the Black Dog Institute website of evidence-based school programs, which are available. So I think that's a right. really great starting point. Advocate for including these kinds of programs in your school, create a culture of openness, educate yourself on referral pathways. And, you know, one of the biggest things, and this isn't just from, you know, my own personal desires, is to participate in research. This is how Mm. we know what works and what doesn't. I know that it can be resource intensive and difficult for schools to do that. But the only way we're going to know if school-based programs work is if schools participate There's a giant study that's coming out of Black Dog and Associated Organisations next year that's looking to enrol 400 schools with 20,000 young people. And the kinds of evidence we can get out of a trial that size are are really so important and informative in this space. And the only way we can do it is if people participate. So that's a really uh, another really key take home message is if we if we want this partnership to work, then, you know, they're. It has to be a partnership, I guess. So, Fantastic. Well, Yale Perry, thanks so much for your time today. We, we've we covered a lot. We have. <laughs> it's been a long <laughs> interview. It's been very in-depth. You know, you started off with definitions. I was really excited about how the Sparks R study showed that with only five hours, we can have some significant impacts on, on the depression and anxiety of young people as they head up to their end-of-year exams. You talked to us about the the affordance of, of technology to support young people in terms of privacy, rural and remote challenges, the fidelity of the interventions, enjoyment and also scaling. For, for me, there were, some, there were some key takeaways there. You talked about the ways in which teachers, it's helpful for us to foster an openness to students and, and think of ourselves as, as a first port of call for students in, in terms of supporting them. And you've also encouraged us to be really proactive in supporting young people. So I've, I've found this interview to be really, really fascinating. You've been a great guest and we look forward to following your work in future. 
Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Yao. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Yale Perry. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollielevel.com. This episode, we've also got a list of helpful resources and referral services regarding supporting adolescent mental health, so it's definitely worth checking out. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR, I'd love for you to consider supporting it through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the cost of room hire and sound engineering. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners. Thanks for your time today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.